I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Jenny Butler, a well-known folklorist and the leading authority on the academic study of contemporary paganism in the Irish context. Her book on this topic, 21st Century Irish Paganism, Worldview, Ritual, Identity, is forthcoming from Rutledge. Dr. Butler is a lecturer in the Department of the Study of Religions at the University College, Cork, where she teaches various courses, including Death, Dying, and the Afterlife, Western Esotericism and New Religious Movements, and Contemporary Religions in Ireland. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a-2-3-c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, well, my... My main research so far has been on contemporary paganism, so modern day uh, witchcraft and druidry. So there are other forms of paganism in Ireland. So my research is focused on uh, the Republic of Ireland. And uh, the, uh, when I started researching and still today, the most dominant forms are witchcraft, particularly Wicca and um, also druidry. So. There are other, you know, there's various types of um, neo-shamanism and heathenism and the Nordic, uh, the various Nordic kinds of paganism and Germanic types here as well. But uh, I decided to focus on, just so it wasn't too unwieldy, you know, and focus on particular types. And also I, like my research includes people who self-identify as pagan generically. And so not everybody chooses particular path or denominate like a path is kind of like a denomination um, or tradition this is another term for a type of paganism so some people just self-identify as pagan yeah I think I would be in that category because I've like studied various kind of avenues and I really enjoy them and I can see the benefit of like working in a very specific way but at the end of the day I end up kind of doing my own thing yeah so I just think I'm like generally pagan (laughs) It's like um, eclectic forms that would mix um, different pagan traditions together, but also various aspects of the occult, you know, different types of esoteric systems that are mixed together. So some people even call themselves eclectic pagans because they kind of do that in a very aware way, you know, consciously selecting different elements of things and aspects. 
I was really fascinated when I went to Ireland last summer and saw you there. It was really fascinating for me to see, like we went to like museums in Dublin to see how much of a Nordic influence there was. And I hadn't really thought about it because I remember telling you about this, but I had been so excited to be there because I know a lot of my ancestry ancestors are from there and I had never been before. Um, and then to see how much of kind of a Nordic influence and how the Scandinavians had kind of settled there for a time um and that when i did the ancestry.com kind of thing dna thing it said i had like 12 percent scandinavian and carl had said it's probably from that time when the scandinavians kind of raided the irish um yeah yeah another another thing that i i research and um, that we can maybe talk more about later but um i, I research uh, fairy lore and landscapes and one of the places I went was Iceland. So there's that shared history, you know, the, uh, the, the Norse um, back then taking the Irish as slaves um, and various other kind of cultural contacts as well. Um, so nobody knows whether, you know, the, the Irish brought their traditions of the, the she, the fairies to Iceland or whether the Icelandic uh, traditions of the, the elves, the Hulk, into Ireland, so no, nobody knows which way it went, uh, or whether those things were in both uh, both places. So it's interesting. There's a lot of parallels there. That's so interesting. Place, place names in Iceland as well, going back to ancient ancient times. Yeah. So what's Druidry like? Druidry is um, a, a way of you know. There's lots of different definitions of these things, but um, you know, very. Kind of basic way of describing it. It's a way of connecting to, uh, you know, spiritually connecting to the land, to energies, to changing seasons, um, and lots of Druids practice magic. So there's quite a lot of similarities between, um, you know, I mentioned Wicca and witchcraft and Druidry. There's parallels there. Um, so like some, some Druids I've spoken to talk about practicing spells. Uh, others wouldn't use the word spell, they might um, talk about magic or energies. So people have their own, their own definitions and understandings of, of these things and how they work. So um, in, in my research, I pick general characteristics or um, you know, things that are, I, I try to look for the essence of, of something and, and describe what it's like characteristically. So um, one of the things that's quite hard to explain um, when you're doing ethnographic research, especially on something like paganism, is how freeform it is. You know, there's so much diversity there. So even with druids, um, there, are, there are different kinds of druids. So for um, most of the people I've talked to uh, and practiced ritual with and celebrated festivals with, um, the, the Celtic world uh, and beliefs about the Celtic and ancient times is quite important and the, the old gods, um, as, as well as the things, like I mentioned, um, seasonal changes and connecting with the land that you live on or our you know, environment. Yeah, and I think that's something that's so important because being American, I feel like that's something that's so lost in the American culture. It's like everybody um, has immigrated there from somewhere or been taken there by force or the people that lived there originally have been so like decimated and massacred and like pushed off onto these reservations. There's really no like cultural uh, 
ties to the land or to like these seasonal points or any sorts of real like community community rituals at all and i feel like connecting more to the land and people's ancestors and heritage and mythology would really help <laughs> yeah i think that's the main impulse for contemporary paganism is like connect you know connecting back with that trying to reconnect with um you know the old uh, religions with that sense of place um, and what, like a sense of place whether or not you're you know born somewhere with actually whether or not you have a lineage um, a lot of the people that I've spoken to um, have have a connection with they, like, they feel a connection with Ireland or with the Celtic um, however they understand that and maybe they don't have any Irish ancestry or you know, they don't have any connection to a Celtic region. So I find that quite interesting as well, that people develop that kind of sense of place um, because they feel drawn to it. So, Yeah, I really like that. I think that's important to, to differentiate so that there is blood. Everyone has blood ancestors, but there's also adopted ancestors. And you could be working with, you know, spirits or people of, that came before on the land that you're on, whether you were born there or your ancestors were born there or not. Yeah, and uh, a lot of people that I've interviewed um, have talked about, you know, we all live on a planet, um, so, like, we all belong, you know, and uh, ancestors, people have always moved around the planet and migrated, and all land has energy. You know, people talk to me a lot about magic as energy or things like, um, you know, energy currents, whether they're described as ley lines or whatever it might be, kind of PowerPoints, uh, sacred sites. So everywhere has those um, and um, knows the exact significance of these ancient places. So um, in, that, in that way, people can connect to those energies or however that's understood, um, energies or the magic of the land. Land is everywhere, you know. Exactly. The earth, I feel, is inherently pretty magical. <laughs> yeah. What are some sacred sites in Ireland, if you wouldn't mind talking about some of them? Okay. And there's lots of, uh, you know, I, I mentioned Celtic, uh, but there's um, the sites that pagans identify and lots of other people identify as sacred sites are um, pre-Celtic. So things like Newgrange in the Boyne Valley, um, there is the Hill of Tara in County Meath, and the Hill of like the, the in the middle of Ireland, um, you have uh, what used to be a fifth province. So now we have four provinces: we've Ulster, Munster, Leinster, and Connacht. Um, but in ancient Ireland, the structure uh, was those four provinces with a sacred centre called uh, Mide or Mida. It's a M-I-D-E. And over time, the boundaries changed. So you have the counties of Meath and Westmeath. And uh, now there's only the four provinces, but in the Irish language, the word for a province is Cúiga, which means a fifth. So this structure is quite significant in the, uh, the Celtic cosmology and whatever went before it, because we know that those uh, sites that were built are um, predating the, the influence of Celtic peoples. So, um, for example, Newgrange is believed to be older than the pyramids at, at Giza. So 
um, new granges in uh, the Boyne Valley. So you have in Mead and Westmead lots of these sacred sites and hills, uh, those some kind of um, uh, a sacred ceremony at Samhain, which is the, the festival that became Halloween, um, which is another process that I study, connection between Samhain and Halloween. Um, but uh, there was a, a fire lighting ceremony that began at the Hill of Tara, um, which was the seat of the High King, or the, the Ardwy. And um, the, the first fire, there's a legend that the first ever fire was lit, lit on the Hill of Ishnach, which um, uh, is also in the sacred center. So there was something where the, the High King um, would be in charge of when the, the fires would be lit, and every fire around the country um, is supposed to be lit, you know, after the, the official is lit. Uh, so that's an ancient ceremony. And there's still a fire lighting ceremony um, every year. Uh, well, not, not, not this year, unfortunately, because of the, the, the COVID-19 situation, but um, on Ishnak, there's still a fire lighting ceremony. So um, lighting fires is an important part of the, the pagan rituals today. Um, and there's, you know, different beliefs about why ancient people would have lit fires, um, maybe something to do with the sun uh, being at its zenith on the summer solstice, that's another time for fire lighting, um, but maybe other, other reasons to do with some mirroring something celestial that was happening, so nobody really knows. Uh, so a lot of the sites are sacred hills um, that had some connection with the, the royalty of ancient Ireland, so we don't have a, a royal family anymore. Um, in, in Ireland because that clan system uh, and the, the royal family was um, uh, destroyed basically by the um, by colonization. So um, the other st structures would be things like, um, you know, lots of different megalithic monuments, stone circles. Um, so there's lots of, you know, legends about stone circles and, um, you know, a lot of folklore attached. And uh, for a lot of pagans, um, the, the circle is a sacred symbol because it doesn't have a beginning or an end. Um, so the, uh, the, the usual thing for the, the types of paganism that I study um, would be for the, the individual uh, or the group to cast a circle. So casting a circle is a technical term. It's either visualized or marked, marked out on the ground. And uh, for some groups, the stone circle is very significant because it's an already marked sacred circle uh, or magic circle out on the landscape. And uh, the, the energy that's raised or, um, you know, uh, whether it's to do with the earth energies that I, I mentioned a while ago or the, you know, invoking deities, uh, calling on she, on fairies during ritual, that energy then is encapsulated during the ritual um, and then sent out for a specific purpose. So the circle is quite significant. So we have lots of stone circles, things like dolmens, um, which also have many legends attached to them um, and are associated with uh, ancestors because there were burials, cremations found in them. So, um, you know, there's lots connected with the ancestors and the afterlife. Um, among among pagan uh, groups and uh, the there's various different 
beliefs about the afterlife and the other world or the, the, the spiritual realm. So um, other sites would be, you know, the, the woods, um, uh, the word the druid comes from oak wood. So it comes from the, uh, the Greek word dros uh, and dros is oak and then wid is knowledge. So it's translated as priests of the oak or knowledge of the oak. And the, the Ireland used to be covered in oak, oak trees, um, which were cut down um, during colonization as well. The British wanted the uh, the woods, the, the 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 wood for you know building railways in the colonies and also for shipbuilding things like that. And then the Irish government also exported a lot of wood. So we don't really have um, forests. We don't have big forests in Ireland anymore, uh, but we still have you know woodland so that would be a special place for lots of pagans as well and um druids would there's many different druid orders and uh different organizations um and many of them use the word grove for their groups so the, the ritual group is actually called grove so this references you know the the classical accounts of druids uh, venerating their their gods in oak groves and um, the word in Greek is nemeton um, for the, the grove of trees um, or forest clearings that they, they used. So um, there's a lot of kind of connecting up with uh, the past, um, but because so little is known in the Irish context, at least about, about Druids, um, you know, some, uh, like we mentioned, Nordic, the Nordic uh, religions earlier and um, Kind of there's more detail when it comes to ritual and, and belief there. Um, but with Druids, there's just some, you know, sparse writings about Druids. A lot of it was um, propaganda. Uh, so we don't have writings from the, the Celtic peoples themselves. Uh, so in terms of modern day Druidry, it's, it's more that it's inspired by the past and, uh, you know, a precise recreation of it. So in paganism, there's a lot of awareness of that, you know, in, in um, some sectors of academia and especially the earlier, you know, earlier writings about, about uh, contemporary pagans. And there's a lot of kind of criticism or highlighting of this, um, you know, that it's, it's uh, uh, not possible to reconstruct these religions and that, you know, this is why the term neo-pagan is problematic because sometimes pagan practitioners feel that academics are saying that this is not authentic um, or it's not it's not a real religion um, but uh, it's you know there's a lot of reflection on that in, in paganism that it's not possible to uh, to directly continue everything in terms of ritual or belief but it's more about the spiritual uh, threads or strands through time that are being taken up again yeah that's beautiful and yeah exactly and it's more about the process than like trying to recreate anything like by the book so to speak you know that i feel like a lot of times in a lot of fields things just get lost when you're focused too much on those kind of details and and not focused on just the process itself yeah and you teach all of this. Yeah, um, I was just going to say it's like a, a spiritual connection is about spirituality. You know, it's not about document, you know, not, not necessarily about documented facts. Um, 
but about how, how people connect with that emotionally and, and um, spiritually. Yeah, I teach, um, I teach just different courses in, in study of religions. One of them is uh, um, called Western Esotericism and New Religious Movements. So um, it's the only course of its kind. It's an undergraduate course. It's the only one in, in an Irish uh, third level institution. So um, I teach that one and um, I try to focus on the history of the occult in, in Ireland and the connection with Britain um, and you know that kind of milieu, uh, historical milieu, and then looking at the development of things like paganism um, and also uh, you know the, the use of the Celtic Celtic spirituality, what that means to different um, in different forms of religiosity and so on. Um, but I also I also teach uh, um, on folk religion. So my my academic training was in folklore. So I'm quite interested in vernacular or popular forms of religiosity as well. It's beautiful how much of the folklore has survived through colonization. It's yeah. so rich. Yeah, I think um, like, another, like another thing I'm quite interested in is um, national identity and how how folklore, like what, what the connection is uh, with folklore and in countries that are colonized um, because the people are oppressed and their their traditions are denigrated by external forces. This happens uh, everywhere that there's colonization. People, um, pe people's connection, uh, their cultural connection to those traditions are either very strong and they're kind of asserting their, their difference um, to their colonizer um, or people um, might reject their own traditions um, and have cultural shame around them. So that's something I look at in relation to fairy lore. You know, why people um, in Ireland might view these things as, uh, you know, as so-called superstition or, you know, why, why it's described differently as some, you know, to other things like an apparition of the Virgin Mary, for example. So these things have different cultural status, you know, different um, kind of cachet, and they're, they're um, described differently, approached differently in, in academia and uh, in, in a general sense. So I'm, I'm quite interested in uh, different attitudes to things like fairies, like otherworldly beings, and why, why people have different um, attitudes in whether or not they believe in these things in different parts of the world. So uh, in Iceland, um, you know, it's very openly spoken about, uh, about elf rocks and things like this. Um, and people are, are uh, overtly very proud of those traditions. Um, but in Ireland, sometimes people are very hesitant uh, to speak openly about them. Uh, for example, in a documentary or something like that. Um, it's more a private thing and um, the people uh, would tell you um, so you know I've, I, I interview people that have encounters with with fairies um, and I also collect you know contemporary legends and um, uh, to do with to do with landscape and different sites but uh, I'm most interested in, in people who have experiences where they um, perceive these beings and the, the context in which that happens and what it means to them 
um, and that's, that's why it's so, again, a more ethnographic uh, kind of study. Yeah, have you seen any like certain themes about like times or kind of certain situations where they seem to be in contact with these? Um, well, in Ireland, uh, fairies are particularly associated with May Day or Bjautina, which is the first of May. So that's the traditional start of summer. And uh, the belief is that fairies are associated with the um, what are colloquially known as fairy forts or ring forts, these uh, archaeological remains that are uh, on you know, farmlands and all around the country. And uh, the ring forts, which are also called she, so the word for, for the, the native term for fairies, she, or sheath might have been the old Irish way of pronouncing it. Um, the mounds on the landscape, these forts are also called she. So the she open up at uh, Samhain, or sorry, Bjautina and Samhain as well, there's a connection between the festivals. Um, and the fairies travel from fort to fort uh, along fairy paths. So these routes um, that are uh, locally known as the, the routes that the fairies take. Um, so these are on May Day in particular, they're dangerous places, um, but places that need to be respected. So human beings are more likely to encounter fairies on uh, May Day. And uh, the, the fairy world um, is described as like a, it's like a mirror image or a, um, they do very similar things to human beings. So um, the start of summer on, on May Day is the traditional time to move um, cattle to different pastures. And so the fairies would be doing that as well. So it's more likely that um, humans would encounter fairies. So there's a whole corpus of, of legends about that, but people uh, also uh, have experienced it. Um, so uh, there's a, a perception um, that things like fairy lore, that this is something that belongs in the past, you know, that the stories are passed down, but that people don't believe in this today or that they don't have experiences. So, and that's why I started doing this project because, um, you know, I'm known as a folklorist and people like taxi drivers, for example, would start telling me things um, that had happened to them. Um, and so I, I became interested in collecting this and, and um, that led to doing comparative research then with other, other countries. So similarly in, in, our, in Iceland, um, uh, people, they, they talk about New Year's Day as being the uh, a time associated with fairies, but people, uh, with elves, um, but people have had experiences that, that spoke to me. Uh, they didn't relate that to any particular time of the year. It was just something um, seemed to happen at, at different times. Uh, so. Yeah, I really feel like this is such important work. And similar to you, you know, in my office, um, I don't know if my analysis necessarily knew anything about me or not. I think maybe now some of them do because I'm more on the internet, but maybe like five or seven years ago, I really wasn't. So I don't think so. But literally everybody who comes into my office at some point says something like, you know, I don't want you to think I'm crazy, but this and this happened or, you know, and they're usually talking about speaking with dead 
loved ones or synchronicities that they notice. I know that it's not really real, but I noticed this thing happened at the same moment I was on the train and then I saw this thing and I don't know if I'm making things up in my head. And everybody has this like internalized like shame around like noticing synchronicities or like having beliefs um, about communications with people who have passed on or ancestors. And it's really, it's really sad. It makes me really sad to see everyone like question themselves when literally everyone talks about this at one point or another. Like all of my analysis have brought something like this up at some point. I find that um, when, when it's approached in a, a serious way, you know, um, rather than as in the case of fairies, as it's, it can be approached as like entertainment, like these, these stories, you know, um, just the stories are kind of uh, told without any uh, analysis of the, the wider meaning. But uh, I find if you approach it in a, um, a serious way and people know that you, uh, you're genuinely interested um, and when you start to talk about it, it's really surprising the amount of people who have experienced something um, especially people, you know, who who have told me um, that they didn't believe in these kinds of things. Um, for example, like people who moved to Ireland and they they had a ring fort or a fairy tree, a hawthorn tree on the land, and they had some experience that they didn't even know about these traditions. And then somebody, a neighbor or something, tells them, um, well, you know, that's a fairy. Or, you know, it it didn't come out of um, belief or something that they were aware of already. So I find that quite interesting as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, um, like, as you said, um, people who experience um, receiving messages from, from loved ones, and uh, there, there's so many things that people experience that um, they, they can't explain or, you know, they... Um, these things are are out there and they're really people are really experiencing these things um so uh that's that's partly what i'm looking at you know why uh why are these things in particular um associated with you know uh cultural shame as i mentioned and i think one of the things in in ireland um we had a a very tragic case um, the, the burning of Bridget Cleary, so a woman who was um, burned alive as a changeling. She was uh, her husband accused her. He he um, said she was a changeling, and um, her relatives uh, also took part in in um, that uh, tragic event where um, she was burned alive. So that was in 1895, which isn't really that long ago, and. Uh, so I think those kinds of things happening um, maybe led to people, uh, you know, being a bit wary of speaking openly about believing in fairies um, because it became kind of a, associated with ignorance, but also um, associated with kind of, uh, you know, somebody is, it's kind of used in Ireland, like that someone is away with the fairies, that they're eccentric, um, but don't actually speak about believing in fairies. Uh, they might be ridiculed, you know. Whereas if someone talks about the Virgin Mary or even believing in angels, there's quite a different reaction. So I'm interested in, in that, you know, why, 
why that is. And those are all things that can't be proven. Yeah, exactly. And this is, I think it's part of colonization as well. And I, I think it's really a shame that people are taught to not trust their own personal experiences and to trust this dominant discourse that's handed to them over their own personal experiences. And like in the dominant discourse, okay, it's okay to believe in the Virgin Mary and angels, but it's not okay to believe in Fay, right? So yeah, I think that's really a shame. And that's when I had the first when Carl and I had the first psychoanalysis art in the cult conference in London in 2016, I must say that like 90% of the psychoanalysts came who are all from Ireland. So, so thank you. <laughs> um, they were the most open to coming. So that was really nice. And, um, you know, the way I tried to frame it with my more academic friends is that, you know, for me, the way I see it is this is like the last kind of area where people have to see how colonization has affected everything. Because of course, everyone understands now, most people understand now in academia that like racism is a big problem from colonization and the, the gap in wealth is a big problem from colonization. There's like all these problems. But when you get to like magical thinking or like paganism or even, you know, these kinds of historic practices, you know, then everyone like turns their nose and it's like, guys, it's the same problem. This is also yeah. like all of these are indigenous beliefs that were there before Christianity and the colonizers. And then the Catholics and Christians came around with their swords and their crosses and like put everyone into submission by force. <laughs> and so, you know, that's not okay. We need to undo that and allow people their own um, belief systems again. Everyone doesn't have to agree on this one monotheistic perspective. Uh, I think in, in Ireland, because of the, well, partly because of the um, scandals in the, the Catholic Church, um, you know, they, 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 they've had so much control over the lives of uh, people, people's every, every aspect really of people's lives um, for centuries. And there's still a lot of control there um, with the Irish state. Um, but I think that those, the series of scandals, so that this sexual abuse, um, like widespread uh, abuse and industrial schools, which were basically prisons for children, and also the Magdalene laundries. Um, uh, I don't know if you, you, you know about those. They were um, uh, basically prisons as well. Uh, and the, they were run by Catholic orders um, of nuns, and the industrial schools were run by Catholic priests and the, um, the Christian brothers. Um, so the, the uh, Magdalene laundries were, uh, theoretically, they were for so-called fallen women, who um, the idea was that prostitutes would be rehabilitated in this kind of institution as an, as an asylum. Um, but uh, they were um, places where unmarried women uh, who, who got pregnant um, were taken. Uh, sometimes they were sent there. The legal system was kind of bound up with these institutions. Um, so, uh, you know, some parents and um, uh, also victims of rape and incest were locked away in these places. and. Um, some people were there for their whole lives. So these institutions were only closed in the 1990s. Um, so they've been um, 
you know, these scandals have rocked the, the country. And there's also the mother and baby homes, which were similar institutions to the Magdalene Laundries, where babies were taken away from their, their mothers and sold largely to America by the, the nuns. Um, and we had a, what's known as the Tomb Babies case, where uh, 798 babies were found in a cesspit. Um, so there is, you know, these harrowing things have happened. So the kind of um, uh, what the Catholic Church has been, been doing for uh, generations and telling people what they believe and this assumption that everybody is Catholic and that's starting to change. Um, so, uh, I mean, it started to change um, many, many decades ago, but uh, there was still kind of, uh, there was a, a different kind of public discourse. Now, um, there, there isn't such a, uh, you know, I think there's much more interest in new religious movements, different kinds of spirituality, and a freedom to, uh, for people to choose um, between them if they want, uh, and you know, or to try out different um, kinds of religiosity or to express an interest. So, I mean, the further you go back in, in time, uh, the more dangerous it was to um, to uh, openly criticize the church or to um, be a different religion or have no religion. So, um, may I think I may be more aware of of uh, um, of those things simply because I research contemporary pagan paganism. But I've noticed uh, since I started researching, which was in 2002, so <laughs> quite a long time ago, um, a lot of people didn't know what pagan meant. You know, in a religious sense, they in Ireland it's been used by uh, Catholic uh, clergy, but also Protestants. Um, but mainly cler uh, Catholic clergy to mean somebody who has um, no religion or who's antagonistic to Christianity. So it's kind of like a godless heathen is used in the same way as pagan. So a lot of older people would associate paganism with that, that kind of um, thing. So, um, but I've noticed the changing profile of paganism. When I started researching it was uh, very difficult to find, even on the internet, anything in Ireland. Um, whereas now, uh, also because of the, the protests um, at the Hill of Para about the M3 motorway, which was a pagan-led campaign, a lot more people know what, what pagan means, or that there's druids and witches today. So, um, Were they so. trying to build a road through a, a sacred site? They did. Um, unfortunately, they, they damaged part of the Hill of Tara, um, Rathlu. So Lu is a, a described, um, at least, as a sun god. So he's associated with light, Lu or Lug, um, so a Celtic deity. Um, so there's a mound on the Hill of Tara called Rathlu. So Rath is just a, a name for a fort, so these mounds. Um, and the, the motorway, it's a, a big toll road, they, they um, bulldozed part of the, the site, yeah. So, um. It's so devastating because this can't, those kinds of things can't be fixed, you know? Yeah. Once it's, it's like gone, in this, uh, 
it's like in the states with like the most atrocious is the mount rushmore you know it's like this is this is like a sacred site for millennia and then you've like carved these presidents faces into it it's just like yeah. disgusting what are some of the other uh gods um there's uh well ireland is named for a goddess eru um Aaron. So uh, there's um, a whole pantheon of, of uh, deities that are described as Celtic. So I've had, <laughs> you know, I, I use the word Celtic for the, the mythology, the old religion. Um, but of course, there's, there's the pre-Celtic aspects and sites. Um, so the, in terms of academia, the Celtic, the word Celtic is used, but I'm aware that it's, um, it's problematic calling this material Celtic because it's older um, and it refers to things that are older than um, the Celts. But anyway, um, there's the different deities like the Dagda, who's described as a, a good god, not that he's morally good, but he's good at lots of different things, um, many different skills. There's the, the Morrigan, who's a, well, there's various uh, goddesses that are war goddesses they can transform into a crow and this is an omen of of death so it, it continued on in folklore and uh, there's a likely connection um with the the kind of fear of crows and they're they're associated with death um and uh so the morrigan the the name means uh, phantom queen or um moor is big so um a great queen or phantom queen and uh she is described in the Tawn, which is the Irish epic, Tawn Bokulna, or the cattle raid of Cooley, she transforms into a crow um, and flies over the battlefield. And this is a, a symbol of, of doom for the opposing army. So there's other goddesses that can transform into crows, like Bibe. Um, and uh, Bibe is also a name for uh, the Banshee in some parts of the country. So there might be a connection between the Banshee and sovereignty goddesses and this is a, a, a theory anyway that um the banshee is a is a an otherworldly woman who is a death messenger so she cries and and wails um for the dead but she doesn't cause death so she um she kind of uh, appears so it appears as a, usually as an old woman um with long gray hair um, and she, uh, people either see her or they hear her crying and it is a sign that somebody in the community is going to die. So it's not usually the person who's dying that, that hears her. Um, but she's said to follow people with O or Mac in their name. So in, in the Irish language, you have lots of names, O'Brien, you know, O, Flaherty, whatever, uh, O is of. So it comes from a um, Ua, uh, which is descendant of, and then Mac is son. So McCarthy um, and so on, so son of. So these are from the old clan um, structure. So the Banshee following O or Mac um, is maybe a way of saying that she follows the old Gaelic clans. Um, so this might be connected to sovereignty goddess because in the, in the mythology, you have different goddesses that are associated with lineages um, 
you know, of, of human beings and associated with particular geographical regions. Um, so um, an example of, of somebody uh, like a, um, a deity like that would be the Kaliuk. Uh, the Kaliuk era is associated with the Bera Peninsula. Um, and uh, she's described as the, the Hag of Dingle. So she's known in folklore as kind of a witch figure. Um, but she's also, there's also another tradition about the Kaliuk that she, um, she is a goddess of the land and that she had many, she's connected with Munster, you know, Cork and, and Kerry around that area. She's, um, there are stories about her having, you know, whole clans and, and uh, tribes of people named, uh, or, you know, connected to her. So um, she's a sovereignty goddess. So you have these um, different uh, motifs or images um, in the folklore and the mythology that might be uh, connected. And there's other um, goddesses like Bridget or Breed who were Christianized. And, uh, you know, I mentioned Lu, the god Lu or Lug. He's a pan-Celtic deity, so he's known in different parts of Europe. So Lyon in France is, is supposed to be named for Lu, um, parts of Britain, um, and uh, also in, in Ireland, the, the name Lu, the place name, uh, place names are thought to be connected with him. Um, so with Bridget or, or Breed, it's similar. She's a pan-Celtic. Uh, deity, and uh, she's particularly associated with um, Gaul, which is modern day France. So you have the uh, Brigindo, she was known as, and then in Yorkshire, there's a connection between Yorkshire and and Ireland, and um, the tribe called the Brigantes, um, who venerated this deity, uh, Bridget, who became Bridget. Um, so the name Bridget, Breed, um, Brigindo, uh, Briganti. Um, are all thought to be the same goddess and it's thought so I keep saying it's thought or, or we think because nobody knows for sure and there isn't any documented evidence but it seems that the, the the veneration of this deity was so strong that the the, um, the early Christian uh, missionaries decided not to try to stamp this out um, as they did with many other things, but to change it so that she becomes a Christian figure. Um, and we know from much later times, um, missionaries in South America, for example, intentionally did this. So it's likely that it was done um, in earlier times as well in different parts of the world where the system of replacing, um, replacing shrines or older sacred places with Christian churches and um, instead of destroying the temples. So over time people will forget, um, you know, um, as generations go on, they will be born into a world where something is associated with Jesus, the Virgin Mary, or a particular saint, and they won't know the older, the older practices. Um, but it continues in what we call folk religion. So we, we have those kinds of um, strands and uh, Hints, hints at things. So with Bridget, it's um, the general consensus uh, is that she's a pagan deity that just has this Christian veneer because there's um, so many fertility aspects to her. You know, she's connected to um, particularly cows and, and deer um, as being protected, protector of them, of, uh, 
of women uh, lactating animals and, and humans. And also um, she's particularly associated with uh, midwifery. So Bridget is supposed to be the, um, supposed to have been the midwife to the Virgin Mary that she was carried um, from Iona uh, to, uh, to Bethlehem. So there are, are different parts of the Celtic world, like Scotland, Ireland, um, and also in continental Europe are connected in, in these legends um, of, of Bridget. So her shrine, um, she's also a, perhaps a sovereignty uh, goddess. Um, her shrine uh, is in Kildare. Um, in, uh, so Kil means church and Dira is oak. So this is another place name that comes from the oak the oak forest that used to be there. So the Church of the Oak is her shrine. Um, and there's legends that priestesses of this goddess would have kept a sacred fire um, going perpetually, kind of like the Vestal Virgins in Rome. And um, this kind of shifted into Christianity as nuns who tend a sacred um, fire. So that's, that tradition still continues today of fire being associated with the Saint Bridget. Um, and even with Saint Saint Patrick, um, you have the Saint taking on lots of um, traditions that are older. So Saint Patrick becomes associated with the Hawthorn tree, which is the, the, the native fairy tree. So you have, you know, kind of emerging together of lots of different things. So the um, uh, there's many other uh, gods and goddesses, like uh, another example of how the landscape is so important. Um, the, the rivers are named for goddesses. So you have the, um, I mentioned the Newgrange in the Boyne Valley. The river Boyne is named for a goddess, Boan. So Bo is a cow and she's uh, associated with, with the animal cows, but also with the Milky Way. So um, with white cows in particular. So the, um, the longest and the biggest river in Ireland, the Shannon, is named uh, for the goddess Shannon. And she's one of the Tuatha Dé Danann, um, or the, the people of the goddess Anu. And the Tuatha Dé Danann are, in later folklore, they're associated with the, the fairies. Um, so the, um, the mythological tradition or the written um, material uh, is interconnected with the much later time periods and folklore that um, you have many different variations of things but the stories have continued um, about those rivers and different local areas of the landscape in terms of deities and fairies and uh, different kinds of, of spirits as well. Would you say a little bit about the connection with Samhain and Halloween? So um, Samhain uh, comes from an old Irish word. So Old Irish is a, a dead language that developed into modern Irish. So Irish is a Celtic language. And the, the name for Samhain comes from Sav, which is uh, the root word is to do with summer. So we have the word uh, Saura for summer in, in Irish. And so Sav and Fuan. So Fuan is end, so Samhain is literally summer's end. So it's the end of summer and the start of winter. And it's thought that the, the Celtic 
peoples um, that they structured their, you know, their cosmology, their thinking was dark and light. So this is, again, it's speculative, but from, from what is known, um, it's thought that this uh, permeated a lot of their thought. So the, the year starts in darkness um, and comes out into the light at spring, at Imbolc, um, which in Irish comes from, uh, possibly from eye milk, which is ewe's milk, it's a lambing season, or in modern Irish, Imbolc is in the belly. So the year starting in darkness and also the, um, the, the time is measured by nights rather than days. So the, the festival times begin on the eve so for Samhain, it's uh, in our modern calendar, October 31st through November 1st. So a lot of things like um, divination, uh, you know, um, especially to do with marriage, marriage in the coming year um, would happen during the night of, of Halloween. So the connection between the two, you have Samhain being, um, uh, there's different uh, interpretations of whether or not it was a feast of the dead, um, but it's associated with the returning dead, at least in, in later folklore, so early modern Ireland onward, when we first have collections of, of folklore. Um, there's uh, many traditions to do with the, the dead coming back at Samhain. Um, so in, in Irish, the name for the month of November is Samhain. Um, so it's, sometimes it confuses people because the, the, month, the names of the months can be the same as particular festivals. So um, the people uh, would leave their, their doors unlatched um, on Halloween and uh, they would um, leave a, you know, a plate of food out for the, the, a dead relative. Um, so it seemed to be a very welcoming custom. So this is something um, that seems to have... Uh, died out as far as I know. I, I don't think people still set a place for dead relatives. Um, and it's more associated with uh, something very scary now uh, with Halloween. Um, so the, the connection between them, you have this uh, feast of the dead or at least a time associated with, with the dead. Um, and then you have uh, the, the Catholic festival of the, the, feast, the feast days of all saints day which is on the 1st of November and All Souls Day on the 2nd of November. So the for All Saints, um, Roman Catholics pray to, uh, the, to saints and to the faithful departed who are believed to be in, in heaven and then for All Souls it's more recently deceased um, relatives and friends. So people pray for the souls in purgatory um, so that they can be cleansed and go on to heaven. Um, so in the Catholic belief, uh, it's prayers and lighting candles um, help help the souls on their way. Um, so in the, in the popular uh, belief, um, so the the two, you know, the Catholic and the the so-called pagan merge together in relation to uh, ideas about death. Um, but it's interesting that the uh, Catholic Church moved its festival of all souls from May to uh, 2nd of November. Um, so um, who knows whether that was 
intentional. You also have festivals associated with death in other parts of the world, like you have the Mexican uh, Dia de los Muertos um, or Day of the Dead uh, around that same time. And um, we know from other contexts that the church, Catholic Church um, has intentionally kind of made decisions um, to replace festivals or um, maybe intentionally to merge things. Um, but uh, so that's quite interesting. But um, there were the, the, the word Halloween, um, it was first uh, recorded in 17, uh, seven, the mid 1740s in, in writing in, um, in Scotland. It was a, a shortening of All Hallows Eve. So it shortened into All Hallows Evening and then All, Hall All Halloween and then Halloween. So that's why you still have the apostrophe in Halloween. Um, some people spell it with the apostrophe because it represents evening. Um, so, uh, and Halloween, you know, the hallows comes from the Old English Halle, holy. So it just relates to the um, Catholic uh, holy time. Um, so uh, the, in the Celtic world or the, the that cosmology, nobody knows for sure. Um, when it comes to the, the you know, the, the religious meanings or the uh, beliefs and practices, because all of that material was written down by Christian scribes and it was changed as they wrote it down in, in medieval times, which was, um, you know, much, much uh, kind of uh, later in time than the, the pagan world, if, if you know what I mean. Uh, so the um, the she that's translated into English as fairies, the she might be the human dead, or they might part of the she might be the human dead. So nobody knows um, exactly what she are. But most people nowadays understand ghosts and fairy fairies as being different things. Um, so part of the tradition at Samhain. In, in Ireland is to leave an offering for the fairies. Um, so this maybe uh, is leaving an offering for the ancestors so nobody um, nobody knows. And it wasn't really looked at that way, you know, during folklore collection. Um, uh, so uh, I, I always think of the, the very early anthropological studies in places like, you know, the African continent and um, uh, how, as you know, as disparaging um, or as pejorative the writings were about those cultures, they still documented the beliefs and practices as as religion. You know, so we have much more information on African indigenous uh, religion, um, and you know, in India and different parts of the world, there's that detail, but in places like Ireland, there isn't. So, um, you know, a lot of people might laugh in, in Ireland uh, if I talk about fairies as religious, um, as something religious. Um, but when you think about it, we go back further, go back far enough in time, mythology is, is religion. Um, and uh, these things come from, from, you know, a life world that's animistic. So um, we don't know exactly what these things mean. Um, so it can be very frustrating to to try and connect uh, 
or you know to try and understand modern folklore um, with that backdrop or modern I'm saying folklore um, but, you know modern um, beliefs or manifestations of things um, so uh, yeah the, the the connection I'm making is with the this um, time for remembering the dead um, Samhain is also a time when you're supposed to leave offerings for the fairies and the fairies would be around um, so the general belief um, is that fairies are invisible to normal sight unless people have the uh, second sight um, as it's known in, in Ireland and Scotland and um, there are traditional figures like the Ban Fasa or wise woman um, so fis is knowledge so the Ban Fasa who'd have the second sight um, so also the cunning man or fairy doctor uh, people who can see into the other world or the fairy realm um, so they can see or perceive fairies and other people can't so that's why you have kind of a, a euphemistic way of speaking about fairies as the little people or the, the good people the noble people or just themselves these these kind of ways of coded ways of, of talking um, so Samhain uh, is a time to protect oneself from from the dead um, and also fairies because there's what's known as the wandering dead uh, who might seek some kind of retribution on the living if some something was done wrong uh, in life or something that's not settled. Um, so there's different interpretations of what all of that means. Um, so then you get all of the other things uh, that are mixed in with Samhain and Halloween. So in, in Ireland, one of the things people would have done traditionally is to make a what's called a jack-o'-lantern with them uh, carving out a turnip or a beetroot and putting in you hollow it out and you make a, a scary face on it and put a candle inside so there's different interpretations of what that means some or, you know why it's done some people say it's to to scare scare away spirits to, to you know fire is used to ward off spirits um, and some say it's to light the way for the souls of the dead um, so nobody knows and uh this became pumpkins. So the, the, when the Irish emigrated um, to uh, North America, particularly the United States, they brought their traditions with them. So the, the poor people who were um, leaving Ireland in the, during the, the 1840s, so you had Black 47, as it's called, the Great Hunger, which was a, a starvation of the people. It's, it's referred to as a famine, but it was actually, uh, there was plenty of food. It was, um, food was actually exported from Ireland um, at that time. But uh, when people emigrated because of that or to try and make a, a better life in America, they brought their traditions with them and uh, it became pumpkins. Um, so pumpkins aren't native to Ireland. They, were, they came back with that American tradition. Um, so um, things like trick or treat, like the phrase trick or treat is American, but this is another thing that came from Ireland. Um, that people believe is is an Americanization, um, but it's it's, it's a, there's many um, door to door traditions at the Irish festivals. So for Imbolc, the start of spring on the first of February, which is associated with um, Bridget Saint Bridget, you have group a group which might be all boys or could be girls and boys depending on the region would go door to door collecting for the biddy um, or Bridget. Uh, and they collected 
dairy produce and um, in later times money. And then on May Day or Bjautana on the 1st of May, which is the traditional start of summer, children usually would go door to door collecting uh, food um, and also things like ribbons and uh, coloured papers to decorate a May bush. Um, and uh, then Lunasa, or which is named for the god Lu or Lug, uh, which is the harvest festival. That was more about going out onto the hills um, and having picnics and berry picking, things like that. Um, but Samhain did have a custom of going door to door to collect uh, sweets, um, candy and uh, other things, um, food, uh, but also things for a bonfire. So in some parts of Ireland, um, there was the tradition of lighting a fire. Uh, so bonfire comes from bone, bone fire, because the ancient feasts, they would have thrown the carcasses, the bones into the, the fire. So um, the bonfire is, is uh, important on, on Samhain, uh, especially in, in urban areas like Dublin. Uh, it continued up until relatively recent times, but now with European law, people aren't allowed to spontaneously light fires. So there's, the tradition is changing. There's a designated fire often um, for uh, Halloween. And so there's, uh, I think the, the kind of association with the dead and the spiritual world, the, the veil becoming thin, um, which I think is something that, a phase that comes from um, Victorian seances and uh, that kind of context of the um, people use that a lot now to describe that kind of liminal time and this association with the dead and spirits and fairies this took on a more sinister aspect with Halloween and um, partly because of the American uh, the Americanization of um, you know how things transformed in in America it became more connected with evil um, and uh, with, you know, you have the Halloween films um, and it being a, a very scary time. And uh, some of that might be to do with different forms of Christianity, like ev evangelical Christianity. Uh, there's a much stronger reaction against these pagan elements um, than there would be in, in Ireland because with Catholicism, it's, you know, the, the folk religion is popular Catholicism. It has a mixture of both. So people don't usually view the, these old traditions in, a, in such a negative way. Um, so with things like pilgrimage, for example, there's a lot of pagan uh, aspects there. But the people, generally speaking, the, pe the pilgrims would not consider themselves to be doing something pagan. They see it as a, as a Catholic devotion. So, um, that's also very interesting to study, you know, how that's different in different parts of the world. Um, Absolutely. I could listen to you talk all day. <laughs> it's so interesting. Um, I'll say the one thing I'll say is since I've moved to Sweden, I've been, you know, trying to study the folklore here. So I read the Edda and now I'm learning the runes and, um, 
you know, trying to take hikes in the forest. Uh, and they have these great, like, huge runestones just, like, randomly. I mean, they're not random to them, but you'll just be hiking in the forest and you'll just come across these, like, huge runestones with these, like, amazing carvings in them. It's really fascinating. I had no idea. And they still have, like, burial mounds in different areas as well that they've left alone, um, which is nice. Um, but the same thing is that the, the Edda, you know, it was all an oral tradition and it was written down by a Christian monk in like the uh, medieval times. And um, similar to the, the rune stones in Ireland, um, there's the Oam, Oams or Ogham, depending if you're using the old Irish or modern Irish, but the Oam stones um, are, well, there's different interpretations of, of what they they been used for but they're like the rune stones and um, they're seem to be marking territory uh, and um, University College Cork where where I'm based has the biggest collection of Owen stones in in Ireland and um, so they're uh, you know we're told on the one hand that the, the Celtic people and the Druids they didn't have any writing but on the other hand you have this whole system of writing called Owen so um, I wonder sometimes like I have no, um, I have no basis for saying this. It's it's just a thought. Uh, but um, the, you know, in other other contexts, uh, like South America, again, we know that a lot was destroyed um, by missionaries and others uh, who melted down, you know, calendars that were made of gold or bronze. And um, so who knows whether there was, you know, different kinds of texts in ancient Ireland or elsewhere. Um, so if people have writing, it would seem, you know, it would seem for strange for a, a illiterate culture to not use writing. Um, and, um, you know, you mentioned earlier the, the imposition of, of, of Christianity and the, the forceful nature um, of that overtaking, you know, it's presented in in Ireland, um, especially among Cel modern Celtic Christians. Uh, you have this idea of, of Celtic Christianity that there was a very harmonious change, um, and in one sense, we know that uh, the early Christian early Christianity in Ireland absorbed a lot of nature religion. Um, but on the other hand, people don't just give up their religion um, or their their way of being uh, so easily. So um, we don't have any documentation about how that happens. So uh, it's it can be a bit hard to believe that it was so harmonious. Yeah, no, I don't believe it at all. I'm sure it was really violent. That's like in, in America, you know, we grew up with Thanksgiving and having these little like parties where we like dressed up as like pilgrims and natives and like had a meal together because we were all sharing and friends you know <laughs> that was just yeah. I was just in school in the 1980s so I'm sure they're still doing that now so yeah they rewrite it how they see fit I would say another aspect of what I uh not what I researched but I, I suppose it's, a, it's more of a the research interest it's not something i've actively uh, researched and interviewed people about yet but i'm quite interested in um music and uh folk metal so i'll soon be editing a, a, a collection on folk metal 
that's coming out with Palgrave Macmillan that's been um, kind of on the back burner. So that's sometimes described as pagan metal. It has, uh, you know, elements, it's either traditional music that's mixed with metal riffs and, and so on, or it's, um, you know, mythological and folkloric content. So pagan uh, religious content um, or kind of references to folk, folk life and um, uh, different things, but depending on the band, but I'm quite interested in that as a, as an art form. Um, and uh, also, I, like, I'm, I'm interested in the kind of connection between esotericism and, and music. So another thing that I, I will be doing uh, is um, a collection of, of essays that I'll edit on the music of Tool. Um, so and their kind of what occultism has to do with their their lyrics and, and so on. So, um, nice. And then what was the other book that you had edited recently? Um, it might be still working on on Twin Peaks. Oh, say more about that. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big fan of David Lynch, um, and uh, the a lot of the academic work um, that has been done. Like, there's a few books that have come out uh, focusing on the return uh, of Twin Peaks after the 25 years, but. Um, up until then, a lot of academic work was uh, either feminist analysis of, of David Lynch, or it was, um, you know, specifically in, in film studies, or looking at um, kind of, you know, just more more in film and and uh, that area. So I wanted to look at the more surreal and weird aspects, and especially the connection with the esoteric. So. Um, I have a group of people from many different disciplinary perspectives, so from music studies, from, from film studies as well, but uh, from, you know, English literature and from um, anthropology who are looking at the, um, the kind of esoteric specifically. So um, that book is, uh, it'll come out with uh, Macfarland, and it's called The Twin Peaks phenomena so we're going to look at the, the film fire walk with me and the the whole three seasons of twin peaks and um there's also going to be a special journal issue um for the uh journal um J jsr and see the, the journal for the study of uh, religion nature and culture so um that's looking specifically at that nexus of religion nature and culture in twin peaks um so uh that's another thing I've had on the back burner. So the, the time just kind of passed by, but um, yeah, uh, that's, that's the next thing on the list. Nice. Weeks. And do you know if your conference is going to have to be postponed yet or not? Um, well, I'm organizing the next um, European Society for the Study of Western Esotericism, the SWE 8. So uh, that will happen the 5th until the 7th of July. 2021. So um, I'm organizing it uh, in the hopes that everything will be fine and it won't need to be postponed. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, so the um, key keynotes, uh, 
are is that Claire Nally, who's going to speak about Yates, um, uh, William Butler Yates, and then there's um, uh, Christopher Webster, who's going to speak about um, photography uh, in the, the Bird Bike and uh, um, the, the, the specific um, titles of their, their lectures have gone out of my head. Um, but Marco Pazzi will also speak about uh, aquaculture and art. So um, the conference will look, the theme of the conference is art and creativity and uh, Western esotericism. So I'm hoping to incorporate, you know, different art forms, painting, um, literary uh, aspects and photography, things like spirit photography. Um, and there will also be some artists who will be hopefully exhibiting in Cork uh, in association with the conference. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Jenny Butler. For more, please visit her website, drjennybutler.com. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org.
someone is waiting for me. Someone is waiting for me. Someone is waiting for me. The cut-up method was, was a member of both, is set across in the, someone is waiting for me. Bad conscience of complacency to say what's temporary has no elsewhere body and put on it spread eagle on the comb affirmative head someone Ready to go. Affirmative.